And so please do hit the clock. I, there's, there's a lot to this. I just want you to settle in a little bit. Uh, I want to tell you, we're on the women in ministry. Uh, some of you who have been around here for a while have heard much of this. Sorry about that. Uh, but it's important, and I think I'm putting it in a way that's different. But the one thing that I can promise you is, is when we get to the end, you're going to see and hear something that you've never heard or seen before. I don't think. I'm not saying no preacher ever has ever come up with it, but I've never seen it anywhere, and it's astounding to me. Now, just in order to get us all on the same page, I need us to remember what we did last week. We're going to do this quickly. We talked about finding the hidden God. We talked about the fact that God is hiding in plain sight, waiting to be found in a number of ways. And what we talked about was is you can go through life and look at the circumstances of your life or look at a scripture, and you can do it in a superficial, casual, surface, sort of drive-by way, and you will get some understanding of what the verse or the life situation or whatever, what it means, right? But the chances are you're going to get it wrong, And either way, you're not going to get it fully right unless you do something else, and that is dig in to find the fullness of God. How do you dig in to the word and the interpretation of your own life, the things that are happening to you? How do you dig into those things that you not have a casual, superficial, surface understanding of what God's doing, but you actually find truly God, the deeper, richer, fuller, more glorious God? That's what we looked at last week, and I just need to do a couple of things because it's going to be very important for us because I'm about to do something. Scripture tells me that I'm under obligation when I preach to get it right, that it's a double thing to me that I get it right. I'm held under a higher standard, and this is a, this is a big one that we're doing right now today, and so I just want to get some things down. When we are interpreting scripture or our lives or anything else, when we're interpreting something, right? Like what, what happened in your life and how do you read it? What, what is God saying to you through it? That's an interpretation. That, and the principles of interpretation that you use are what is called a hermeneutic, okay? That's just the technical term for it. And so what I want us to do is understand that anytime we're interpreting things, there's certain principles that we use. Most people's hermeneutic is Casual, superficial, surface, drive-by, whatever, whatever I think off the top of my head, that's what it is, okay? But we want to be more intentional about that because it helps us, and it makes a huge difference in other people's lives. So what I want to show you is this. The first thing is we have to hold on to something, and this is what we looked at last week, and that is that God is love. We have to. Any interpretation of anything that's happening in your life has to be able to harmonize truly with that God is love and doing something loving or you've misinterpreted it. You've got an interpretation, but it's wrong. You see that? In other words, why don't you just think about it? See, I can, I can, I can be, have a besetting sin in my life, something that I keep messing up on, right? And, and I can try and try and try and try and over, you know, after a few years and several thousand mistakes and blah, 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 I can get to a place to where what I feel like is I feel like, well, God loves me, so he's, he's love, but... But, you know, I'm a screw-up. I don't really belong in the inner circle. I'm not really the apple of his eye. I'm the disappointment in his life. He still loves me, but, you know, the way a disappointed parent does. Now, when you do that, what kind of person are you going to be? Fairly morose, right? Fairly bummed out. And, And the people that are watching you in your relationship with God, what kind of God are they seeing? Kind of a bummer. 
What if you start understanding that Jesus Christ actually died for every single sin that you ever did in your life and God was totally aware of it the minute that he brought you in? Not just the ones that you've done, but all the ones that you're going to do. Doesn't give you excuse to sin more, but do you understand that he knew every single sin that you did and he loved you so much that he gave you his son to pay for every single sin. He didn't just give you a son to die for you, he gave you a son to make you his child. He gave you a new nature. He did, look at the thing. If all of a sudden, in the midst of failure, if what you continually find even more deeply, I mean, at some point in time, you know, seven times 70, God said to forgive. Well, what if you're at 700,000 times 700,000? If you can find the God that is love in the middle of that, what kind of love do you have for him? Because here's what the scripture says. Those forgiven much, love much. And now you're living in the glory of a God who is boundless in his mercies, who is infinite in his love. You see it? And now people that are watching your relationship, what kind of God are they seeing? A God that brings hope, that brings life. A God that they want to know. You see it? So we have to start at God is love. And let me just show you right here in this scripture that that's exactly what John is actually trying to make the point about. Because look what he's saying that we have to do. He's saying, he's talking a hermeneutic principle here. He's saying you've got to get something in your heart. Now watch this. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. You see what he's doing? He's saying we know this, but we've got to hold on to it. You see that? And if you don't think that's what he's saying, let me take you to where God said something through Paul. Look, then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. You see it? When your hermeneutic becomes that God is love, it'll keep you strong. See this? You may have the power, and may you have the power to understand. See? To actually get it right, to interpret properly. As all God's people should. How wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. You see it? May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully, and then you will, be make, you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Isn't that beautiful? You see what he's doing? He's making an argument. I'm calling it a hermeneutic principle, but he's making an argument. Keep this stuff first. It keeps you strong. It keeps you right. It keeps you grounded. It keeps you interpreting things properly that you can move on and be a life to not just yourself, but other people. You see it? So what we have to do is, hermeneutic principle, whatever understanding, interpretation we have of a verse in the word or the things that happen in our life, we are only correct if it ultimately shows us yet again that God truly is love. Not compromised love, not disappointed love, love. Crazy apple of the eye, you're, you're everything to me, love. Okay? Now, there's a second hermeneutic though that we have to put with that right away because here's how you could misinterpret. If you think that that's true, here's how you could screw it up. You could say, well, then whenever I sin or, make a di- or do something bad, God doesn't really care because he loves me. Well, that's totally wrong, isn't it? Because God is not just love. He is just as equally something else, which is holy. Attending him, this is a scene we see in Isaiah, but it's repeated in Revelation. 
Attending him are mighty seraphim, angels. They have six wings. Now look what they do. With two they cover their faces, with two they cover their feet, and with two they fly. They're calling out to each other, holy, 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 three times holy, perfectly holy, holy in every degree, in every dimension, in every way. Holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. See this? Now look, holy, 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 the three times holy, cover their faces, cover their feet. Do you see what the image is? The image is like this. They're too, God is too holy even for the angels that surround him to look at him. That's how holy he is. You know what holy means? Separated. That's what it really means. You know what that means? God has used a word to define. You've got to catch the linguistic joke here. God has, used, God has come up with a word that says this. You're not like me. <laughs> you are different than me. <laughs> you are separated from me. You see it? Because I'm holy and you're not. See it? So we gotta hold on to this too, just as hard as we hold on to his love. And so that's the second part of this first hermeneutic. God, now watch this. God hates sin. He's holy and he hates sin. Why does he hate sin though? Why does he hate sin? Because it's separating us which is not what he wanted. What did he want? To be one with us. That was his goal. So the sin is separating us from him and he hates that. Do you see it? Now that means, what we did last week is we said, can you find Jesus in the Old Testament without looking at any of the prophecies? And we showed that you not only can you, it's like almost so obvious that it's ridiculous nobody caught it. You can find Jesus all the way up to the cross almost without any prophecy. You can certainly find God dying for you. You find it right here in these two things right here. If it's true that he's absolute love, crazy about you, and that he hates the thing that's separating you, what's number three gonna be? He's gonna bring you back together. See it? He's always making a way for us to truly be one with him, always. Isn't that who Jesus is? <laughs> Jesus is the part of the Godhead that dies for us to make us one with him. But that's the whole heart of God. In everything he's doing, the Holy Spirit is with you right now to help you, to show you how to live life, to show you how to get out of sin, to show you how to live intimately with him ever more so. You see it? Everything God is about is to reconcile us because he made us to be one with us. And God's good at getting his way. But he does give you free will. All right? So right there, you got God is love, God hates sin, he's always making a way for us to truly be one with him. All right? Now, now let me just say, these three things right here, if you just remember those three things and interpret everything in your life in that, that, in, in that context, if those three things, you will, you will properly interpret a very high percentage of what's happening to you, and it will change how you react to things, how you act about things, what you do about them. It'll change, it'll change everything. The truth is, almost everybody is casual in how they interpret, and so they come to wrong-headed understandings that hurt themselves and other people that are experiencing God through you. See it? 
Now there's one more principle that we did last week and then we're done with that. In a fallen world where fallen people often misunderstand, we need God to get it right in us. We need the living God who breathed the word into being to breathe into our hearts and minds the truer, richer, fuller, more glorious understanding. Here's what I'm saying. In a world where we get it wrong all the time, we need revelation of how much God loves us, of how holy he really is, and what the way is that he's making home. Do you see it? There you go. All right, now, that's what we did last week. That's the hermeneutic principles. These are the principles that we have to live by today when we interpret one scripture. This is a sermon about women in ministry, and I'm only gonna use one scripture about it because I'm gonna go to the very hardest one and I'm gonna show us, I think, how to properly interpret it. And when we get that one done, everything else, all the rest of it falls into place. If I had to go through all the scriptures, we would be here for a couple of days, and I don't think you wanna do that, okay? But what I want you to see is, watch this. This is, the, this is the worst one. This is the hardest one to figure out how to deal with. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first and afterward he made Eve. Not just that, it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan, the woman was deceived and sin was the result. Women will be saved through childbearing assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness and modesty. Now I'm going to rephrase this into the casual, superficial, surface, drive-by interpretation that not only does most of the world take, but an awful lot of Christians do too. You will be offended at what I'm about to say, but the fact is there are roots of this in a lot of Christians too. Here's, here's, the, here's the paraphrase of that. There is something wrong with you women. I'm not gonna look at any woman. I'm gonna look at you instead. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> now listen, there is something wrong with you women, you're broken and you caused a huge problem, so shut up and bear kids. Raise my children. That's what it says, doesn't it? Can't you do a casual, superficial, surface level drive-by on that scripture and get exactly those words out of it? Or maybe not that harsh, but you can get something close to it. You can get something that is a kissing cousin to it. By the way, it's not just Christians that do this, is it? It's all over the world, right? I mean, you do remember, you know, this is the Nobel Peace Prize girl. All she was doing was going to school and Muslim extremists came and shot her in the head because she was wanting to go to school. And they shot the other girls and they died. This one just happened to live. She got the Nobel Peace Prize for it. I love what she says. The extremists are afraid of books and pens. The power of education frightens them and they're afraid of women. The power of the voice of women frightens them. Now, now again, let's not, let's, I want to look at the world, but do understand, we're just as guilty, just in a different degree, a different way, okay? but you do realize that you don't have to just go to Muslim places to find this kind of thing. By the way, I always wanna say something. It is the height of ridiculousness to me that men are tempted by women, therefore women should wear a burqa. That just seems totally wrong-headed to me. It seems to me if men are having problem with, how, with lust, then they should wear a blindfold. <laughs> 
Isn't that true? I mean, isn't it? Right? Isn't that the smarter thing to do? Now, let me do say, before that First Timothy verse, you do know what he's talking about. And by the way, this is where it comes back to you women. If you are, excuse me, but if you are sitting there hanging your breasts out for all the men to lust after, well, then he says right before this Timothy verse, he says, dress modestly. Have some respect. Have some, help a guy out. Okay? Don't just hang it out there to where a guy's going, oh, my God, what am I supposed to do now? You know what I mean? Right? Okay, so he's asking us to help each other, isn't he? You see it? Right there, he's saying, you know, have a heart, okay? Don't just, anyway, whatever. Okay. I must have said something really bad right there, some pun. Tell me about it later, okay? But look, we can go, we can go to other, other religions. We can, go to, uh, we can go to Hinduism, where in about 15 years ago, I don't know what the latest numbers are, the latest number I could find was from about 15 years ago, 2,500 women a year were being burned to death by their husbands in India. Now, Hindus will say that's not Hinduism, and I, I'm totally willing to say that that's not Hinduism but it does come out of the religion in a way that you could trace it back, even though it's not Hinduism. Hinduism would never say, I don't think, to do that. But yet there's, a, there's an attitude towards women that is taken in Hinduism, okay? You just have to remember all these religious texts we're talking about around the world, women are never even mentioned in them. The only one that has any mention of a woman in it whatsoever is the Quran, and the only woman it mentions and only a few times is Mary, the mother of Jesus, that's it, okay? As opposed to the Bible, which is chock full, right? From the first page on. But the bottom line is, is you can go to India and you can see this. You can go to Asia where the sex trade, you know, we always talk about sex trade, sex trade, and what a bad thing that is, and it is a horrible thing, and we're always fighting the sex trade. Well, you realize that most of that is Asia. That's its, that's its primary, that's where it is just almost part of the culture in a natural, normal way, in a way that's horrible to women, okay? Little girls being taken out when they were way too young to have made any choice about this whatsoever and put into lives of this kind of prostitution and so on, okay? You can go to Africa where, look, we have lots of rape here in America too, but you just don't understand how high the numbers are in Africa for rape. It's horrible. And once again, it's because people are not looking at women as human beings. They're not looking at them as full. By the way, America didn't look at women as human beings fully. You know, she only had, well, you know, she didn't have the vote, right? right. But, but the point is, okay, we're trying in the Western world. God is enlightening and we're doing something and so on. But let's just, I can keep going on with this. Let's just come back home and let's just understand that in, in good old Seattle, oh boy, I don't know how to say this because I don't want to speak ill. Uh, but there was a teaching that was incredibly popular in Seattle from something. <laughs> and it basically said to women, there's a problem with you. So just submit, shut up, raise the children. And it wouldn't say shut up. It would say honor, the men had to honor and so on. But it's still, you, don't, you can't understand the number of conversations I've had with women that were just devastated and saying, I don't know how to, I don't know how to be. Because there's something in this that I think to be true and there's something in this that I think to be false, but I'm only hearing one side of it. See? And so I don't know how to deal with it because all I'm being told is, is don't be who I really am. Right? 
So we're going to be dealing with this verse right now, and we're going to be trying to fix it. And this is a long intro, and I, I told you already, it's a, it's a good-sized sermon. So, uh, But we have Patricia Lyon, who is, uh, honestly, I can honestly say this, I believe, I believe that eldering is something that a church recognizes. I believe an elder is not something a church appoints. I believe it's something that God has mantled and, and anointed, and then a church has to recognize who their elders are. And I want to tell you that in my heart, my belief is Patricia Lyon is an elder in this church. I believe that. Now, theology, this theology, people understanding that theology would tell you that can't be. Okay? But I'm going to talk to you about that. So I didn't choose her. This was just God. Uh, and I told her this a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not just making it up right now. So with that way too much weight on you, Patricia, would you please pray for the sermon, and would you lift up another church too? Jesus, every one of us sighs a heavy sigh um, when lives are muted, uh -huh. when both men and women, when our lives are muted, and God cannot, the world can, cannot mute our lives with God. And for that, I'm so grateful. Amen. So, Lord, I just pray that the truth that Kurt will speak, speak right now will set people free, and not just men, not just women. Lord, all of us Amen. will be set free by your truth. Amen. Lord, I pray over the church in Iran, and I ask for Thank freedom Jesus. for them to speak what is true. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Perfect. Thank you. I did want to say the reason why you want to pay attention to this, she, she caught the end of my intro, but the reason why you want to pay attention to this sermon is because as important it is for women, it's almost more important for men. Not quite, but very close. Okay. Now, let's do something, and let's briefly just get rid of what I would call superficial scholarship. Superficial scholarship is not casual interpretation. Okay, That's somebody who's worked hard at this. But I would call it superficial because it's sort of pretty obvious that it isn't complete. So I'm just going to give you one instance of this. There's tons of it out there that it's arguing. These are by people that are arguing for women in ministry. And what they will do is they will do scholarship that will essentially tear down this word of Timothy in a way that I don't think is proper. Okay? And let me just tell you. What's being said here, Timothy is at this point in time a pastor at Ephesus. So this is Paul, or God, writing through Paul to Timothy in Ephesus. Now Ephesus, you may remember, is the second largest city in the Roman Empire. And it is an incredibly important city because it lays on the major, major trade route between east and west. You see it right there, Ephesus? See? And Athena, that's on the other side, that's Athens. Okay, but the point is, is Ephesus is right there on that coastal thing, and you can see it's a land route to a very safe shipping route, and so on, and it's the major, major trade route. Very large city, there's all kinds of tradesmen in town that are, that are the kind of people who can take goods and services across dangerous territories and keep it safe. The kind of burly men who go for a long time without a woman, and when they get into a town, they do what? Okay, Seattle, by the way, 
You, you do realize Seattle has a big history with this, right? I don't know why Julie gets such a kick out of it, but to, Julie just, she doesn't want me to say this, but, but Julie did an underground tour, and the part that she just cracked up about was is that they did a census back when they were re figuring out how many people were in Seattle, and there was this extraordinary high number of seamstresses. <laughs> Nobody could figure out why, and then all of a sudden they went, oh, it's not about the clothing. Okay. Anyway, but the point is, she, doesn't, she still doesn't like me saying that. Okay. But the point is, is so you've got that going on. So prostitution would already be a major issue here, as it is in any big trade city, right? But you don't just get that. You also get this is an enormously prosperous area of the world in terms of agriculture at that time. There's all kinds of goods and services that are being grown and so on. And in agriculture, what you get is when, when the economy is primarily agricultural, which it still is at this point in time, what you get is, is you get people that really need the crops to come in. You need the rain to come at the right time, and you need the seeds to come, and you need the sun to come, and you need everything to happen in the right way so that you have. And so there's a tendency for people to make up religions that have to do with fertility, because fertility is production. And so what happens is, is that there's the, the goddess, I won't show you a picture of it, but it, you've seen it before. It's one of these things, and she has a whole bunch of breasts. And that's to signify fertility, having a lot of children, producing a lot of stuff, right? So what happens is, is that you build one of the seven wonders of the world there. And the thing that's really interesting about this is called the Temple of Artemis. Most people would call it the Temple of Diana. That's actually a bit of a mistake, but whatever. The bottom line is, it's Artemis. And the thing is, is Artemis is a goddess who has to do with fertility and prosperity and so on. And the point is, what, what happens in this temple, which is pretty unusual anywhere in the world, even in a lot of places, there's almost always a cultic temple prostitution going on. But what you get in this particular one is the women are actually the head of the temple. You don't have a man at the head. You got women at the head. And so what people will do is, is they'll come to Timothy and they'll say, here's what Paul was dealing with. He was dealing with a culture where women were in air, but had risen to the very top. They'd broken through the glass ceiling, so to speak, and they were running a lot of things. And they were in the meetings, and I always talk to you about how we want to do discussions in here and so on, because that's what they did. Well, that's what he's talking about in Timothy. Because what they would do is, is the women would come into these places where they would have these discussions and they would be disruptive and they would not be humble and they would, and men are supposed to be humble too, but they just wouldn't do it in a way that, that led to something going, moving forward. It was becoming contentious and divisive and so on. And so what these scholars will say is, is Paul was just ticked off at these women who were screwing up the church, which by the way, do remember Paul actually thanked more women for running the church than he did men. Why? Because there were more women running it than men. Okay? So remember that. But the bottom line is, they'll say Paul was mad at this particular situation, and so what he said was, is, I don't permit women in Ephesus. At this point in time, given the screwed up situation it is, I don't permit that to happen. Got it? Now, the reason why we can't do that, the reason why that's superficial scholarship, it's not casual, they write big, long books on it, but the reason why it's just wrong on its face is because Paul doesn't say, I don't permit women in Ephesus in, you know, what is probably Timothy, I can't remember what date it is, but probably 50 or so AD, uh, you know. What he says is, he says, God made Adam. Is he talking about Ephesus? What is he talking about? The garden, creation. The place from which gender roles started, <laughs> right? So he's not talking about something that is temporary 
and that we've now become enlightened and we've surpassed. He's talking about something that is a problem in human nature. He's identifying something, okay? And so he's saying Adam made Eve first, after we, or Adam first, and after he made Eve, it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan, the woman who was deceived sin was the result, all right? Now, I want to do something here. I want to propose something to you which is not necessarily true. I do believe it's true or I wouldn't be talking about it. But I want to tell you, you don't have to believe what I'm about to say in the next couple minutes in order to understand the rest of the case. You can disagree with this part of it, okay? But I just want to show you something because it can be very helpful to us as we go, all right? I want to propose to you that the original Adam, I need, Joan Liz, would you come up, okay? And then, I'm sorry, I can't remember your name, but you're, yeah, come on up, okay? Sorry, I should have asked you guys beforehand. I wasn't going to bring anybody up, but it's just time to bring somebody up, okay? <laughs> so here, come over here. You got to stand right in front, okay? Thank you, right here. And then you got to stand here, and then Lizzie, you got to stand back here, okay? All right, now, now, I only want you to see one person right now, okay? That's him. God made Adam. Now, I want to propose to you that one of, the thing, one of the ways of understanding what God did here was when he made Adam, it wasn't like the male that we currently think of. It had all male and all female in. Now, let me show you why, why I'm saying that, okay? Uh, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Semicolon, male and female, he created them. This, the reason why there's a semicolon there is because there's an odd phrasing. It's like he's saying this and this. And, it, and, and this translation gets it right where what it's trying to say is, is there's two things that are true. He created him who was them. See it? Now, you get that even more so when you go to the next place. Okay, that's that. But now watch this. No man, no, the man named all the animals, but there was no helper found as his complement. Again, exactly the right phrasing. There was no man found as his complement. Complement, not servant. Complement. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib be taken out of the man into a woman, brought her to the man. The man said, this is at last, is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is the one that will be called woman, for she was taken from man. That's why a man leaves his father's mother, bonds with his wife, and the two become what? One. What this was, originally. It's a restoring back to the oneness that was found here. See it? So what he did, the imagery is, he takes his rib, he takes something from him, oh, sorry. <laughs> That's awesome. He takes, something, he takes something from him. That's the imagery, isn't it? It's not, just, it's not just he made another thing like him. It's that he takes something from him. And so all of a sudden, there becomes this man. And as soon as there becomes this man, Cage, you got a, you got a boogie, because there is no more that. See? And then what happens is, there she is. You see? These two are that one. Do you see it? Okay, thank you guys. 
right? They just got married, so they are that, okay? Now, now, like I say, you don't have to agree with me on that. You're gonna argue that one if you wanna argue it. I'm gonna give up the case because it doesn't really matter. But I think it's quite helpful, isn't it? In particular, it's helpful about this. When God made the woman, is there any sense whatsoever that she was lesser? No. Let me show you. God realized, this is a commentary. God realized it wasn't good for a man to be alone, and so he made a helper suitable for him. Now listen to this. It is interesting to note that the Hebrew, that the Hebrew meaning of the word helper in this passage is forevermore found in the Bible to refer to God as he helps us. So God made a helper, and forevermore he calls himself a helper. Every other time the word gets used, it's for God helping us. Now, would anybody in here like to say that God is somehow lesser than us? You see it? It doesn't work, does it? You can't say, you cannot say, We've looked at kenigdo before, and we've looked at other Hebrew words. Let me just go to one more to just make the argument as best I can. Let who have dominion? See, it's a reference to a creation that was a one and two. But in this part, otherwise he's talking about Adam. But right here he says, let them have dominion. See, we think Adam has dominion over creation and over his wife. See that? But that's not what's being said here. So if we're going to say that, then let's do a little helpful little chart. In the beginning was the garden, and what we can say there is they were equal. You know what they were? The Trinity. Made in God's image. Right? The Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is one of those lesser than the other? Do they have different things that they do? Yeah. But is anyone lesser than one another? Now, a second ago, I said something about modern theology and complementarianism. That's, was the, that's the fancy theological word for what I was talking about. And people will say, see, that's how it is with man and wife, is that she has a complementary role, and he has a complementary role, and they're not greater or lesser, and they're not, but they're, and all this kind of stuff. But the problem is, is that it still plays out that way. Complementarianism still holds a woman unable to do certain things, but not a man. Except maybe if you wanted to say you can't give birth, I guess. All right. <laughs> Beginning, garden, equal. Got it? We're okay with that. Got, yeah. <laughs> Zach said it, we're okay with that. <laughs> All right, garden, equal. All right, now, so in the beginning, it's equal. Now, in the end, what is it? As many of you were baptized into Christ and put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, actually, that isn't actually talking about heaven. So just bracket that for a second, would you? Well, there's no more male nor female in Christ. And we know in heaven there's no more male nor female because some people come to catch Jesus, to trap him. They're so good at trapping him. And they say to him, see, there's no life after death, and the way we can prove it is, in the law, there's this thing where if, if, a, if, a, if a son is married to, a, you know, one of the sons is married to a woman, and the son dies, in order to propagate the line, the next son has to marry her. He can still have his own wife too, but he has to marry her in order to keep the memory of the other son alive, in order to keep his inheritance alive in order to do all these other things, right? So what they say is, they say, look, the first, there's seven sons, the first one dies, 
the next one marries, the second one dies, the third one dies, fourth one dies. But the se- they get down to the seventh one and the parable says that nobody could find him because he'd run far away because he didn't want to die. Okay, that's not what it says. Okay. <laughs> what it says is, is all seven died and then they go to heaven and in heaven, what is she, the wife of all seven? That's not cool. Isn't it interesting that a guy can have a lot of wives, but a wife can't have a lot of husbands? Anyway, whatever. Okay? I mean, culture, I'm thinking in the world, just one of those little thoughts, okay? So the point is, is what Jesus says is, look, you guys don't understand anything. He says, marriage is for people here on earth. In the age to come, those worthy being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They're like the angels, he says. Here's what this means. Can I make this really clear? This is a bummer part of scripture for me, okay? I love God and I love his word and I'm, I'm, I really am thankful for this, but I have to get over something first because I got like the best babe ever, okay? You know, I mean, I got Miss Hot USA ever, you know? So, so I like want to be with her in heaven like I am now because she's my best friend and she's awesome and I love her and she's incredible and everything else. But here's what God's actually saying to us. As much as you've ever loved your wife, Multiply that by a billion, and you will love every single person in heaven that way. All the joy that you ever got out of, being lo- out of loving and being loved, you will have that. You will be known as you are known. See it? So what God's saying is, is in heaven, is the, marriage is the thing that gets us to f- taste heaven. Now. That's an important concept for us today, to taste heaven now. But, okay? So the point is, is what we say is, in the beginning it was equal, in the end it's equal, but in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the woman is under. And where do we get that from? Real simple. But the one thing that we want to note is, that's temporary. Do you see that? It doesn't start that way, it doesn't end that way. Something happened to make it that way for a while. What happened? Well, that's what we're going to do. Temporarily under from the fall to teach all. So we're going to build a nice little chart here real quick. And what we're going to do is we're just going to go through some certain things. Okay, so here's the scripture we're looking at. To the woman he said, after she fell, right? I mean, she ate ate the fruit and then gave it to him. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. This is, they were made to be side by side. And now all of a sudden he's putting her under him. So what's the, now watch this. What's the not debatable fact of that scripture? This is the one we can't argue about. What's the facts, ma'am? Pain and labor, desire for the man under him. See that? You can't argue that. But you can do something. You can try and find the deeper, richer, fuller purpose of it, the why, what this is about. So it's some speculation, I agree, but when we're looking for the why, the possible interpretation, the thing that we can say is, learn to follow. She's the one that led, see that? And she led him into a bad place and she herself didn't follow God. So the first mistake she made was eating because God said don't eat of that particular one. And the second mistake she made was to have him eat. You see that? 
So we can say that the reason why God is putting her under is so that she'll learn how to follow. See that? Right? Now, what's implied but not said, but it's strongly implied, it's very much in here, is, is that she's a natural leader. She's the one that led. It's like he was just, oh, do, do. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. <laughs> right? She was doing the stuff that it takes to lead. But now watch, that's not the whole of it. And we've looked at this many, many different ways. There's many ways that we could look at this. But let me just show you something about the way she led. Watch what she did. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of the fruit and ate it and she then didn't give any to Adam because she wanted to domineer over Adam and rule him. Is that what it says? But that's what it could say. You see, because there's a way of ruling that has to do with, I got something more than you do, so I'm gonna keep it so that I can be over you. You see it? But that's not what women do, is it? What women do is, from babies that they take care of to ever, what women do is they nurture. And what does nurture mean? It means to raise up. That's what they do. She was giving him, oh, this was really good. It's opened my eyes. Here, you eat it too. See, she was raising him up too. She wasn't trying to get over on him. She was leading badly, but she wasn't trying to get over on him. She was nurturing. She was raising up. That's what women do. So, all right, there you go. Now, where's the deeper, richer God to be found here? I'm gonna gonna put question marks on that because now we need to go to the man's side and we need to see what happened with men. Okay, to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree of food, I command you not to eat. The ground is cursed because of you. Your life will struggle to scratch a living from it. It'll grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your bow, you'll have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from the dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, I probably should have phrased this. Uh, Michelle McCluskey said this to me earlier, and I was gonna talk about it, but I probably should have said, labor will be hard. But I wanted to put provision for a reason, but it's the same word. Her labor is going to be hard in, in, in what she's doing in having a child. His labor is going to be hard in scratching a living from it. Well, where did we ever come up with that he was the one that was supposed to be scratching a living from it? And she was just taking care of the babies. You see that? So there's an assumption in here. There's something going on all of a sudden. Okay, by the way, read Proverbs and tell me what an what a active woman looks like. Okay? Proverbs 31. Learn to lead. See, now what we, we can interpret it, we can say what the man did when he followed, he not only didn't follow God, but he, I mean, I'm sorry, well, what he did was he followed her. He followed God and her, or not God and her, or whatever, how you want to say that. The point is, he showed that he had a problem with following. So what God is trying to do is, our possible interpretation is, God is saying, got to lead. What does that mean? Well, you got to provide for her. And by the way, all the things that come from her, all those things that sprout, (laughs) okay? So all those, your children, it's gonna be hard for you to provide for your children. You see it? Now, what kind of leader does God want? Is it the domineering one? Is that what he created? Is that what he intended? 
domineer of your wife, tell her what to do, put her in a burqa, shut her up. Is that what he was doing? Or was he telling you to treat her, as he says in Ephesians, as your own body? To raise her up. So the point is, he's trying to teach him how to nurture. See, here's what he didn't do. Here's the, here's the classic mistake that he made. When she said, here, eat, what should he have said? No. But is that where he should have stopped? No. He should have put his arm around this woman that he loves. And he should have said, I don't know what's going to happen, but we're going to go to God and we're going to figure this out. Whatever it means, I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to go through this with you. That's what God did with us. And he's asking us to be with each other like he is with us. You see it? So he should have nurtured. He should have raised her up. He should have done this thing, this, this helps thing. Helped her. See, she's not just helping him, he's helping her. And so now we get to implied but not said, he's a natural follower. Okay, so God's trying to teach him how to lead. Natural leaders, he's trying to teach how to follow. Natural followers, he's teaching how to lead. Okay? Now, once again, we come down to where's the deeper, richer God? And this is what we're going to spend all the rest of our time on right here. Okay? Where do we find the deeper, richer God? Okay. Last week, we went through the Bible and we saw something that was hidden in plain sight Jesus. Right? We didn't have to look at the prophecies. We just had to look at what God, who, who he is and what he was doing and what was happening and we could very easily, if we were being serious about it and working at it, we would find Jesus. I want to argue with you, can we find something about women by just looking at the Bible? I've already told you one thing. It's extraordinary how chock full the Bible is with women as with men. You do realize that some of the very most important characters in the whole of the Bible, old and new, are women. Right? Well, that ought to tell you something. <laughs> that ought to tell us how God feels about women. As opposed to these other religions which are saying, shut up and you know, wear the burqa. You see it? So if we were to do that, and this is a very partial list. I'm telling you, I literally, this, this is its own sermon that is quite remarkable on its own, but bottom line, let's just go to Esther. Here's Esther, a, a, a Jewish woman in a non-Jewish king's harem and an evil man is trying to trick that king into killing all the Jews. Esther takes her life in her hands and goes before the king who the way that she did it could have killed her right then. And given that his ear was being taken over by the guy that hated Jewish people, all the more so did she have to fear. But she comes in and takes her life. It, she was getting help from Mordecai, telling her what to do and helping her out with what to do. But do remember, it wasn't Mordecai that walked into the room with his head that far from being chopped off. You see it? It was Esther. Now, that's just one, but let's, let's go to the one I think everybody goes to. When you, you just go to, what's the beauty of the Old Testament? What's the one of the places that we just find the nature and the character of God personified. It's a woman. Yeah, thanks. Isn't it Ruth? 
right? Ruth, this woman who is, who is a foreigner and the Jewish family leaves because of a famine and the dad dies and so the mother is alone and, and she marry, Ruth marries into the family and then the husband dies and then the other one dies and one of the girls does go back. But what does Ruth do? Ruth shows us what it is to be faithful. Ruth shows us what it is to your people or my people, whither thou goest, I will goest. See what I mean? Ruth is, is beautiful, isn't it? Just think about understanding the beauty of the Old Testament by taking out the story of Ruth. You see how, you see, it flavors the whole of the Old Testament in telling us something about the heart of God. God who is male and female. See, he's showing his feminine side. He's showing his love, tangible ways. So Ruth, let's just, I could go to many, many more Old Testament people. I really had to cut this down. But Mary, let's go to the New Testament right now. Let's just see how big a deal women are in the New Testament. I've already told you that Paul thanks as many women as he does men. But what about Mary? Mother of Jesus. Sorry. I mean, just think about her. This is the archetype that God puts forward with all people where something's happening and you don't understand what it is. You know who Mary is? Mary is to the New Testament what Abraham is to the Old. Am I wrong? By faith accounted unto him as righteousness. She's scared, but she trusts. See it? How about this one, Priscilla? Most people don't. You do realize that Priscilla is one of the people that actually trains up Apollos, which is one of the most important New Testament characters. Apollos has an understanding of Jesus, but it's not right. And it's Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila's a guy. But it's Priscilla and Aquila who come to him. And it's Priscilla, the way that it's phrased, all, most commentators will tell you, it's clear that Priscilla was the one that was really getting him set straight. Whatever his understanding was, she was the one that was reckoning it straight. Now, you can argue whether that's true or not, but let's just keep going. How about Lydia? You do know that she's the one through whom he built the church in, right? I think it was Thessalonica, is that right? I think so. But the point is, is he, he builds a church there, and years later, when he's referring back to it, he doesn't refer to it as the church. That he, he talks about Lydia again. So it's quite clear that Lydia is not only the founder of the church through whom he did, built the church, but she's still, she's still prominently in the headship of that church. How about Junia? This is one that is much debated, but at this point in time, the, the, the people wanna say, well, A, it's not a girl's name. It, it is a girl's name. It just is. There's hardly any scholars that'll tell you it's not a girl's name anymore. But the, but the one thing that Paul says about her is he's, he clearly calls her an apostle, along with her husband, apparently, okay? But the point is, he clearly says they're, they're not only apostles, but they're to be commended amongst the apostles. They're like doing a really good job as apostles. You ever seen a couple that was really good at ministry? There was a clear anointing on both people. This is what we're talking about. But, but I want you to see something here. Let's be really fair to the other side, the one that I'm not going, well, I do agree with it, that's the point. But the bottom line is, let's be, let's be careful about something. In every one of those stories I've just told you, you do realize that there's still a sort of patriarchal male aspect to the story. 
The woman is still in sort of an undership. We got Mordecai and we got Andronicus with Junia and we got, we've always got a male sitting there, right? Which is why the story in the Old Testament that is so important for us to hear is Deborah. Because here's Deborah, who is a woman who was a prophetess judging Israel at that time. I thought God had a problem with men being under authority of a woman. Huh. Hidden in plain sight? How do we reconcile all of it? Let's say something totally off the subject, but it's important. There's going to be people, if, if anybody listens to this caref- sermon carefully, and who knows, but, but if it ever got out, there's going to be people who are LGBTQ that are going to say, the same argument can be made for that Chris doing. Here's what I want to say. You have to find places like this in the Bible about that first. The reason why this argument I'm making doesn't apply to that is because you can't find a story of Deborah and Barrett. You can't find all those other stories either. You don't find the hidden in plain sight. This is not just hidden in plain sight. This is a challenge to what's being said in Timothy, a direct challenge. By who? Who wrote this? Who did this? Who raised her up? This is a challenge to 1 Timothy by God, which doesn't make 1 Timothy untrue. It was her custom to sit on the palm tree of Deborah and the Israelites went up to her for judgment. She summoned Barak, the leader of God's army, and said to him, hasn't the, look what she's saying. Hasn't he already told you what to do? Why aren't you doing it? Hasn't the Lord God of Israel commanded you, go deploy the troops on Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men, then I'll lure Sisera, this commander of these other forces, is to fight against you, and I'll hand him over to you. Hasn't God already told you to do this? The woman is telling the man, hasn't God already told you to do this? Right? Now, what does he say? I'll go if you do. <laughs> but if you don't, I won't. Think about this for just a second here. There's a principle in here that is incredibly important. Men, if you step out when women step up, it's on you. When women step up, there is a tendency for men to step out. You don't believe me? Look at the church throughout the ages. Women have been exalted. Women have been raised into positions of authority, of leadership, of headship, and so on. And as that has happened, men step out. There's a problem here, a human nature problem. Right? But the thing that I want you to see is, God says through her, I will go with you, but you'll receive no honor on the road you're about to take because the Lord will sell Sisera into a woman's hand. He gets killed by a woman who feeds him milk, makes him tired, and then she rams a stake through his head. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. If you want to hold on to a superficial, simple understanding of 1 Timothy, you better deal with Deborah and Barak. You better deal with the fact that God is saying, do I have a problem with women in leadership? The answer is yes, I do. But it's a temporary kind of a thing because you've got to understand that the bigger picture in the beginning, I have no problem whatsoever with it. To the contrary, she's the more natural leader. Don't believe me? Look around right now. Look around what's happening in the corporate world as women are breaking through the glass ceiling. 
I've said it many times, but you can't. You, you, you will look right when women became an ascendancy in the boardrooms, right when women started to get into upper management level things, is when management and businesses changed. And it changed from a hierarchical dictatorial structure to an organic nurturing, raising up the talent that we have here. That did, that did not come from a man. That came from a feminized workplace. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, that came from a place where all of a sudden women were acting a certain way about other human beings. And by golly, that seemed like the better way to act. And it was better for the company. And it was better for the human beings. It was win, 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 win. Right? I told you earlier that you were going to get to hear Josh Morris twice. I'm, I'm just about to go... I want to tell you, I think this is one of the most important things that was ever said in this building. Those of you that know my wife, Justine, know that I married a very capable woman. And in the first years of our marriage, I'm a young man, and I see her with wisdom, with desire to know God deeper and deeper and deeper, willingness to step out and speak to people about who God was or who God is to her. Um, amazing at making decisions because of the wisdom that she has. And as a young man, I'm thinking, wow, how can, I should just let her lead. I should let her make decisions for our family, spiritually and, uh, I don't know, whatever kind of decisions we're making, because she's better at this than I am. I even had somebody, uh, somebody um, a friend of mine, who uh, I was talking with him about how, me as a man, how I should be walking, how I should be growing into the man that God's created me to be. And he said to me, well, part of the problem is your wife. She's so strong. And he said, here's actually what needs to happen. She's actually in error. She's in the wrong because she's so strong. And... What needs to happen is your wife needs to become weak so that you can become strong. Your wife needs to become weak so that you can step into the things that God has for you. Ah, uh, no. <laughs> I actually came, I came to just, I think, I don't know if it was later that day, but it was soon afterwards, and I said, babe, I don't need you to become weak. Weak for me to succeed. I don't need you to give up the gifts that God has given you for me to become the man that I need to be. I need to step up. I need to become the man that God created me to be. Amen? Yeah. What Josh is bringing up right here is, is, that, is that there should be kind of a friendly competition almost. As your gifts are being raised up and as I'm helping you raise up in your gifts, you're helping me to raise up in my gifts. I shouldn't be stepping out and you stepping in. That's just nonsense. We should both be spurring each other to more, as the scripture says, right? But now watch. If that's true... Remember how we said we've got this temporary thing here? Because I'm going to tell you something even deeper than where Josh went on that. He, he, it's so beautiful, but watch this. See the temporary thing? 
what if, that temp- what if we did this to it, just, just for our sakes? What if we just made it Old Testament? Because see, something happened in the New Testament. It wasn't there. If you're born in Christ Jesus, there's neither male nor female. Or how about this one? Go and announce to them the kingdom of heaven is near, said Jesus. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with lepers. He cast out demons, give as freely as you receive. Here's what he's saying. How do we do miracles in the world? How do we do miracles? Is it us? No, who is it? The Holy Spirit. The kingdom of heaven. The things that are in heaven. Perfect health. The things that are in heaven are penetrating through Christ into the things of this world. Setting up another kingdom at odds with the kingdom of this world. Do you see it? There's another kingdom coming in now through the things that we do that are heavenly. That are, we might say it this way, that are, so under the New Testament, can we say something? Can we say that there's a new thing happening where it's under, we're still under, but it's also equal? Can we say that? You've been born from above, out of this world, so to speak, born from above by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is God coming through us, bringing heaven, bringing the fullness that God intended through us into this world. And so isn't the proper arrow that we should be shading looking more like that? Doesn't it have some of the gold that there is a roll, so there is an under still in there? But isn't there something of us tasting the things of heaven? See, living the things of heaven as much as possible now without thinking, and this is key now, Without thinking we can ever be completely free of the things of this world. Here's what I'm actually saying. I want you to start handling 1 Timothy as part of a paradox. I don't want you to reduce the truth of it. To reduce the truth of it is to lose something that God said from the garden was really important to happen in this life. Which is, bottom line, women need to learn how to follow. And by the way, if they're not learning how to follow, then men aren't learning how to lead. So it's for everybody to learn. See? I need you to keep doing this. But do you understand that there's a deeper hidden God? That there's a deeper thing of the heavenlies that is trying to break through? Where what God is really wanting you to do is, he's wanting you to push the truth of both the roles that we have right now, but also the truth of the heaven breaking through right now, where there is this equality. Aren't we supposed to be doing that too? At the same time, don't forget the one. Don't reduce the truth of one in order to reconcile it. Keep the truth of both and push them out to where they go. Because out here you find transcendent truth. See, now watch. This is going to go much deeper and I'm I'm almost done. Look at this. Here's where we are. Nurture. What is the primary mistake that Adam made? What's What's the huge mistake that he made? He didn't say no and take care of her. He didn't help her. He just followed. What's the primary mistake that he made? He didn't follow. So what he's calling men to become is nurturers of women. Let's go deeper. This is where I hope it blows your mind. You know what he's really doing? He's making it right where we screwed up with Eve. You see it? Not by denouncing the roles, not by denouncing the lesson, by learning it, by owning it, by owning the problem. And what he's saying is, as men, when you start getting to the point to where your whole heart is to raise up the women in life, you're actually doing what I do. 
Because that's what I do with you. I don't hold you down and make you less than I intended you to be. I raise you up higher. Now, by the way, if we can say that about him, look what we can say about her. Where did she mess up? She led him astray. That's where she messed up. That was her big mistake. So what's God doing in all of this? He's making things right with Adam, with men, by having her to follow, by helping in a, in a different way, helping things to come to pass. Watch this, okay? I've told you that I stand before the Lord right now under some fear and trembling because I'm teaching you to see 1 Timothy in a different light as part of a paradox. Let's say I'm wrong. And I stand before heaven one time and God says, man, did you screw that one up. I'm under judgment, God tells me. But do you know what I think is actually gonna happen when I get to heaven? I think I'm gonna stand before him and I think he's gonna say, and this is, this is, I just saw Julie in the background. This is with all of the failures that I have as a husband. But I think God is gonna say, thank you for being oriented to raising up my little girl. Thank you for pushing that button. Pushing that button. Women, you cannot forget that you're under that role. Here, here, watch this. You know what? We've transcended it. I don't have to pay any attention to men. I'm going to step up. How's that going to go without a minute, with men in your life? If you, try and, if you try and just do that, how's that going to go? Anybody done that in their marriage? No, let's put it the other way. Anybody not done that in their marriage? You know how that goes, right? When you step up and try and, you know, how's it go? It doesn't go well, right? Well, so too men. When, when you are keeping her down, how's that going for you? Did anybody, how many people in here have done love and respect as a, as a marriage seminar? Best marriage seminar ever, absolutely take it, even if you're not married. Absolutely wonderful about understanding male-female dynamics. Here's what it says, real simple. Women, the thing that you do naturally is love. That's what you do naturally. And so, you love your husband. Has anybody ever seen a woman, though, that loved her husband but didn't respect him? I love him, the big lout. She really does love him. She doesn't respect him, but she can love him because that's natural and easy for her. Likewise with men, right? What do men do naturally? They respect. That's what followers do. That's why they follow. They respect. And so here's what they do. I respect my wife. She's better at me than everything, so of course I respect her. I don't love her. I find it irritating. I don't love her. Now, in that dynamic where the woman is doing what's natural to her, loving, and the man is doing natural what's natural to him, respecting, where does the whole thing go? Down the toilet. But now watch this. Women, if you will get outside of yourself and know that what he needs is respect, if you will come to me and find out what is there to respect about him, if you'll let me show you what I see about him in a way that changes your heart towards him so that you respect him, you'll be giving him the language and the love, he'll be giving him the language he needs, and when he feels respect, well, how do men respond to respect? Love. 
If you respect me, I love you. <laughs> I don't do it naturally, but if you respect me, I love you. Men, what we do naturally is the respect thing. What happens when you respect your wife, men? What happens when you respect your wife, men? They love you. Right there. You see it? When you try and keep her down, when you're raising her up, when you're pulling her up, you don't go down a whirlpool because you're, when you do love and respect, when the woman is respecting the husband, or you could start with the husband, when the husband is loving his wife, it causes her to respect him. It causes him to love her. It causes her to respect him more. It causes him to, and all of a sudden, you don't have something going down a whirlpool. You got something going up a whirlwind. Do you see it? And here's what I want to say, same thing with this. Women, when you will understand that there really is a problem, men too, there really is an issue about this following and leading. Men, you've got to step up into leadership, which is to say nurturing. Women, you've got to understand what it is to be under, and you've got to learn to do that. God has made it easy because of the desire, but you've got to learn to stay in that pocket. And men, you've got to understand that what it really means to nurture is to raise her up. And when you raise her up, what does she want to do to you? When you raise her up, what does she want to do? Come under your covering. Why? Because you're safe. You're not just safe, you're good. You're not just good, you're God. Not God himself, understand, but you are behaving as God when what you're doing, men, is respecting her so much that you are calling her into places that she doesn't even feel confident to be in. Do you see it? Do you see how this goes one to the other, one to the other, one to the other one? You see how it goes? When, when men are raising up women, men, their women are crazy about their men, and they are building him up, and he is building her up, and now we are racing to heaven, stirring each other up. What do you think? Is this true? Does it change things? Does it change your attitude? Does it change behavior? Does it change how you think about women preaching here? Does it change how we think about women in general? Does it change how we think about men? Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, we want to be changed. Come and change us right now. Only you can, but you can. Change us right now. God, speak to our hearts about what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman. Not just the temporary thing that has happened, but the transcendent thing that you're going after. God, you're the same way. When we come to interpret you right, we get into a whirlwind of going up higher and higher because we find out over and over and over how much you love us, how great, how wide, how deep is your love for us. Nothing can separate us. God, in Jesus' holy and precious name, let us enter into the fullness that you have. In Jesus' holy and precious name. Take those cups that are in front of you. In the cup in which is the bread, this is the brokenness of our theology, our understanding, our hermeneutic. 
that we were casual, even if scholarly, or not casual, but we were superficial. We didn't get to the deeper, richer, fuller God. And it not only broke us, it broke those who were around us. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, we put our finger in there recognizing the ways that we broke ourselves, our wives, our husbands, other women, other men. God, in Jesus' holy and precious name, thank you for healing us. Thank you for bringing us transcendence. Thank you for making us whole today. Take and eat this bread together, would you? And now in Jesus' spectacular name, God, you have a way for us to be with each other which is glorious. It is the way that you are with us. So would you just free us that we might remember what is true and important to remember and hold on to, but that we might remember what is even deeper and richer and more true and more glorious. And that we might end up in the fullness of you. In Jesus' holy and precious name, take together.